Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And in today's journey through history, we're going to venture on over to St. Joseph, Michigan and explore some of the early history of this wonderful town, as well as take a look at some of the history of the hotels in that community. So come along and join me. So the history of St. Joseph, Michigan begins almost a hundred years before the American Revolution, when the mouth of the St. Joseph River was discovered and documented in 1669. Ten years later, the explorer LaSalle and his 14 men cleared a piece of land and started the construction of Fort Miami on the bluff around the St. Joseph River. Now, LaSalle was a French explorer, and his stay wasn't long there in that area, and the land was mostly populated by Native Americans, as well as some trappers that would come through seasonally and other soldiers that were serving at Fort Miami, which was the construction of the building that they made there. In 1785, a man by the name of William Burnett established a trading post, and he became the first permanent settler in the area. There was a treaty that was signed in 1828 called the Cary Mission Treaty. And this treaty was, in essence, a treaty that was designed to consolidate some of the dispersed bands of the Potawatomi tribe in the territory of Michigan and put them in a location that was removed from the main road leading from Detroit to Chicago. And it was to stimulate the practical settlement of settlers coming from the east. And of course, there's a lot of injustice that went along with this sort of thing as we look back at this in retrospect on the actions that were taken by these people that made these laws and these treaties. So this treaty and other treaties that followed that caused the relocation of the Potawatomi Indians, I've discussed in other episodes on this podcast. So I'm not going to go into great detail on that today. But just as a point of history for St. Joseph, following that treaty which was in 1828, it stimulated the area of St. Joseph for commerce, and the area began to grow. And the first full-time resident of St. Joseph became a New Yorker named Calvin Britton, who made the long trek to southwest Michigan from his home in New York. And over the years, the port of St. Joseph began to prosper, and it became the principal transportation artery for the entire region. And the territorial roads, which ran from Detroit to Chicago, branched over and went through St. Joseph, Michigan, because it was a central port. It became a significant point of debarkation where you could get on a ferry or ship and go to Chicago rather than follow the territorial road all the way to Chicago. And before it became known as it is today as St. Joseph, it was once called Newberry Port in honor of a prominent businessman who had settled in the village. Today, St. Joseph is nestled on the southern tip of what has been termed the Riviera of the Midwest. This deep water port town is a growing resort community today. And it's part of a small town chain 
that stretches all the way from the state line down in Indiana to Illinois and carries all the way up the coast of Lake Michigan. And it became a supplier of grain, wool, maple sugar, furs, lumber mills, uh, tool manufacturing, hardware, and furniture, as all of these types of products and industry were shipped from the port of St. Joseph at the river's mouth. And St. Joseph River, of course, went inland all the way through southwest Michigan, and it became a transportation source for supplies and goods throughout the region. So St. Joseph is located about 90 miles from Chicago, and today has a community population of about 8,800 people. But it is a very big tourist area. If you've been over there during the summertime, it's the, the popular Silver Beach is a great destination, and the pier and so they've got a lot of great activities out there, and plus a beautiful historic downtown. But let's take a look at some of the early hotel business. As I've covered on other episodes on this podcast, hotels were a staple along the Territorial Road and the stagecoach lines, as well as the resort or riverfront communities. And they were the industry that followed after the early establishment of any village. And usually was somebody who was industrious in the tavern keeping or hotel trade that would establish the first successful hotels and taverns. And the reason is people were always traveling and they always needed a place to stay. And not everybody could afford to stay at the hotels, but many businessmen and people traveling west did do so. And so let's look at some of the early history of the hotels in St. Joseph, Michigan. In 1831, there was a mansion house tavern, and it was located near the site of what would later become the Whitcomb Hotel. And it was owned by a man by the name of August Newell. And Newell died in 1832, so it didn't have a very long existence under his ownership. In 1843, the mansion house was kept by Judge Daniel Olds. It was essentially a rough log cabin lodging house, and it was dubbed the mansion house. And it became a well-known stop for the stagecoaches between Chicago and Detroit. And then in around 1866, it was raised, and the land was used to build the St. Charles. Through the decades, this St. Charles Hotel later became known as the Whitcomb, and it became a favorite of travelers and tourists. It would not compete in the newer decades of travel hotels and motels. And in 1966, the hotel was eventually closed, and it was later converted into a retirement residence. So that was a very old established building in St. Joseph. 1833 to 1834, the Michigan House is thought to be the second one in existence. And it was built between those years. And it was a log building and it stood between the hill west of State Street. And its landlords in 1837 were William McCallum and then Axel and Chauncey and James Dalton. And in 1835, the first hotel in St. Joseph is thought to be the Perkins House, built by William Huff. The Perkins House, built in 1835, much earlier than the Hoyt House, 
had a tough time competing with such opulence. The Perkins House, for a brief period of time, served also as a courthouse. And it held its own between the years between 1858 to 1890. And this hotel would take on several names over the decades, such as the Clinton Hotel, the American House, and the Hotel Brandon. And eventually it burned, along with other buildings, in a fire in September of 1901. Now, the Hoyt House, which I briefly mentioned earlier, was built in 1867, and it operated between 1868 to 1941. And the property history says that in September of 1830, Calvin Britton received his title to the lot where the hotel was built. And Benjamin Hoyt and Enoch Jones bought the lot from Britton in 1834. And then Hoyt gave Jones a mortgage, which would become the biggest hotel in southwest Michigan at that time. It was a red brick three-story, and in the middle of its hall was a sweeping staircase with twin stairs. The new hotel was advertised heavily in the 1868 newspapers, and a sparkling ad was published in the St. Joseph Herald in February of 1868. It boasted a first-class board with or without lodging, and so you could basically go there and eat at this hotel, or you could lodge there as well and take all your meals. And the location was near Ship Street and the corner of Front Street in St. Joseph, Michigan. And everything from weddings to political meetings and even public auctions were held either in or on the front lawn of this hotel. And it was well known for a good selection of menus being offered in the area. In 1870, a young man from Canada by the name of Albert T. Henry, who was only 25 years of age, he was the proprietor. In 1870, the Hoyt House advertised in the St. Joseph Herald as it was now offering hot mineral baths. Now, how were these hot mineral baths done? Well, it was done over a boiler, which was on a large stove, which heated and kept hot 30 gallons of water. And the hot steam provided a constant steam for several baths for men, which were set up in the basement. And there was a set of baths also on the second story for the ladies. And it was advertised as a good cure for those who were ailing. In later years, other businesses in the area also embellished on this idea. And people came from miles around to take advantage of what we would call spas. Today, they called them steam baths at that time. And then in 1871, at the beginning of that year, the hotel had a new boast. And the boast was they had gas lighting. And they auctioned off many of its old-fashioned chandeliers and kerosene lanterns as the hotel had converted to this new system of gas lighting, which was revolutionary for its time. And then in 1873, Mr. Hoyt once again fell into hard times financially. And on November 28, 1873, a Mr. Lyman Collins of the Phoenix Mutual Life Insurance Company took over the lots in the hotel for payment of debt. And previous to this misfortune, Mr. Charles Krieger, another pioneer, built the Newport House, later known as the Riverview Tavern. And he attempted to lease the hotel from Mr. Hoyt, who refused his offer to do so. And then angry, Krieger in 1866, he erected a hotel one story higher right across the street from the Hoyt and named it the St. Charles. 
which would become later known as the Hotel Whitcomb, which I mentioned before. And the Hotel Whitcomb name came into being in 1891. And then in 1885, the St. Charles was sold to Charles Dix of Chicago. Now, in 1878, in June of that year, the Michigan and Central Railroad took over ownership of the Hoyt House. And in the same year, under new ownership, the hotel boasted a 60-foot well with cool, clear, and clean water. Their menu and food quality was favorably discussed by the patrons and also the oyster suppers that they offered on some of their special occasions. These were some of the talk about town during that time. There was a flagstaff on the roof of the hotel that was used as a signal flag during that time. And on September 10th, 1878, Mr. John King raised the warning flag as a storm approached. However, a gale blew in so strong that on September 25th of that same year, the flag staff at the hotel, along with the Liberty Pole on the bluff and the wagon shed of St. Charles Livery Stable, were all blown over in that storm. Now, one of the things that happened at the Hoyt House, which was common during the Victorian era, and I'll talk about that in a minute here, but in 1884, Mr. John Rice and Mr. Kingsley became the new proprietors of the Hoyt House. And that same year, a magic lantern show was one of the many offerings at the hotel. Now, the magic lantern shows were something that you will see when you research old hotels from that period, particularly popular during the 1880s through the about 1900 era. Uh, They were in existence before then. And what they were was essentially what we might call an entertaining gif today. Basically, in the early 1800s, British lanternists would bring projectors and they would project paintings and photographs of images of life and they'd bring along sound effects they would project these on a wall somewhere inside the hotel as a form of entertainment so it was very much an early motion picture industry but it was usually a series of slides and they had some moving sequences that they worked out in the slides which is somewhat familiar to modern day gifts where a thing is just repeating over and over again uh, that you would see on social media or something today uh, on the internet but it quickly became very popular during the Victorian period as a form of entertainment now originally this type of entertainment was a more of an upper class treat as it was quite expensive to set up one of these shows you had to bring in someone who had the equipment and you had to bring in a professional lanternist who knew what he was doing and they charged high fees but as time went on as we approached the 1880s it became a lot more of a general market item and there were more affordable ways of doing this that were made available there were people that traveled the hotel routes and put on these magic lantern shows for hotels throughout the midwest and throughout the united states so this period between the 1880 or to the 1890s the magic lantern shows would come up through and put on these shows and some of the shows included uh, christmas advertisements and astronomy and showed natural history but it also showed foreign ports of call like china and japan and new zealand as it would project these pictures on the wall and show 
uh, some moving slides behind it to make it look like uh, part of the slide was moving around. So it was kind of an early form of picture show entertainment. And I've seen references to Magic Lantern shows when researching the Battle Creek Hotel here in Battle Creek, Michigan. I've also seen references to the same type of show in the Kalamazoo House Hotel. And of course, now in this uh, list of references on the hotels in that period of time in St. Joseph, Michigan. So these types of Victorian entertainment were the traveling shows of that era. And it was a kind of an interesting little forgotten piece of history. So returning back to the Hoyt House, basically from the 1870s on, the Hoyt House continued on and changed its name eventually to the Lakeview House. And the hospitality at this hotel was considered to be unmatched of its time. And during the years that it was known as the Lakeview House, it did have quite a fascinating history. It did survive a fire in 1894, where the west section of the hotel caught on fire. And it was, through the decades, a stiff competition for many of the other hotels in the area. Uh, among those other hotels was the Krieger House, the Perkins House, and the St. Charles, which later became the Whitcomb, as I mentioned earlier. And there was also numerous hotels and resorts in the larger community of Benton Harbor that began to build and grow next to it. In 1890, there was a Planks Tavern, which later became known in 1893 as the Hotel St. Joseph. And it was built by a man by the name of Joseph Plank. And he was the same man that built the Grand Hotel up in Mackinac Island. And it was uh, built on the north side of the St. Joseph River in the Silver Beach area. And its lifespan was short as it burned to the ground in July of 1898. The structure was a mammoth-sized building. It measured 40 to 80 feet wide and 420 feet long with a 400-foot balcony that faced Lake Michigan. So it was quite a prominent hotel during that time. And there was also another hotel called the Edgewater Clubhouse in St. Joseph. And it was also of a huge size and it was well known in this area. And it also burned down in 1931. So those are some of the larger hotels that burned and some of the history of some of the hotels that uh, had a prominent history within the city of St. Joseph over the years. And staying in a hotel during that era of the early 1800s was quite different than the experience that you are used to today. Today, you rent a hotel room and you go in, you have your own bed and you've got your own private bathroom. These early hotels did not have that level of accommodations that we are so accustomed to today. In fact, many times when you were a traveler, you sometimes shared a bed with multiple other people. And so the hotels were typically men's and women's spaces. And you would travel and you would share a bed with two other men travelers if you were a man. 
And that was a custom back in that day. And there were rooms that sometimes there were not enough beds, so they placed sleepers on the floors and added more people to the room. So you didn't have a private room unless you were exceptionally wealthy. Um, But many of the earlier travelers that were just looking for a place to sleep for the night and heading west didn't have a lot of privacy in these hotels. And of course, the bathrooms were often outhouses behind these hotels, the early ones. Or if they did have indoor bathrooms, there was a central one on each floor that was a shared bathroom. And those came later uh, in the late 1800s. You don't really see the introduction of individual bathrooms in the individual hotel rooms until the 1920s and 1930s, if you research a lot of the old historic hotels. A good comparison would be the Post Tavern, which was built around the turn of the century. It had hotel rooms and a central bathroom on the individual floors, whereas the Kellogg Hotel, which was built in the 1930s, was revolutionary and modern in its time, and it had individual bathrooms in each of the hotel rooms. You see the changing of the travelers and the accommodations, and as new hotels were built and more money was invested in them, better accommodations were made to give them a competitive edge over the travelers. And so when we're looking at hotels during the Victorian era, it was quite different and probably unimaginable for a lot of people uh, in modern day to consider sleeping with another stranger in your own bed. But but there's a lot of references to this, uh, even on the East Coast. Uh, Lincoln was frequently mentioning about having to travel and stay in beds with other men while they traveled. So, And that was just the way things were done way back then. And if you couldn't find a hotel to stay in, then you would knock on the door of a house that was nearby and see if they would take in a traveler. And a lot of people made extra money from lodging people that were just on the road, you know, so they would have an extra bed. And sometimes those accommodations were much more comfortable than staying in a tavern or a hotel especially when they were full. So it wasn't uncommon during the Victorian era to have a stranger knock on your door and ask if you offered accommodations for lodging. And this was a customary thing, particularly if your house or farm was located near the territorial road where a lot of the travelers were traveling upon. And many traveled in wagons that were pulled by horses or ox cart and they had their families with them, and they would go as far as they could for a day, and they would sometimes stay right next to the territorial road and set up a camp if they didn't have a lot of money. Uh, But, you know, the elements outside in the weather were sometimes uncomfortable if it was raining or if it was windy or cold or just stormy in general, threatening rain, or in the wintertime. People would seek out lodging wherever they could find it. And that was the custom during the 1800s. So it's a fascinating period of time to look back at and see how the customs have changed. And I believe if you travel around the world, you'll find this type of accommodations where you can stay at people's houses, depending on how remote, in what remote parts of the world that you are traveling in. And um, you don't see that as much here in the United States. We do have different ways of doing it these days with bed and breakfasts and uh, vacation rentals by owners and all sorts of things that are 
now in existence. Uh, but that was the this was the 1800s. So different time period, a different insight into how travel was once done. But that's going to conclude today's episode, looking back at some of the history of St. Joseph, Michigan. I'll probably revisit this town again in the future and go into a lot more details. I did have a guest on in Season 1 that gave us some of the history of St. Joseph, and it was quite fascinating. And I'll probably try to find some more guests to talk about the history of the city as time goes on. But I also wanted to kind of focus a little bit on the hotel industry and what travelers experienced in these journeys west. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to leave a review on whatever app that you are listening on or leave a rating if you don't have time to write a review. And I do appreciate that when you do that. It certainly helps to reach out to new listeners for this podcast. And if you'd like to reach out to me, you can always find me at michaeldelaware.com. I am always happy to hear from my listeners. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past. Thank you for listening.